Hello, my name is Liva Bonnevi and this is episode 9 from Clan of the Horses, a podcast about horses and horse people. Today's guest is Dr. Andrew McLean. He is a zoologist and the CEO of Equitation Science International. Andrew started his career in the horse world as a competitive event rider, and he wanted to become a better trainer. That led him to ask questions about the horse's mental abilities and the difference between horses and humans. This again led him into the fields of equine cognition and learning, and a PhD. And when he started to look at the bond between horse and rider, that led him down the path of attachment theory. And after he had followed that path for a while, the one field that summed it all up for him was horse welfare, or animal welfare, to be precise. The short version is that he thinks we can and ought to do better. The slightly longer version is this interview, that has been divided into two parts. This is part two. So, Dr. Andrew McLean, we are back again for part two of this interview. Yeah, I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. And I can't begin to tell you how thrilled I am to see you again. For although we did cover a lot of ground the last time we spoke, I really felt we needed more time to explore a specific theory that for some odd reason still is considered to be a cornerstone in horse training, namely the dominance and submission theory. Could you start by talking us through the origins of the theory and maybe also explain why we still use it so much? So it is a very interesting question, and uh, I think through many uh, pop authors uh, and scientific authors like Conrad Lorenz, people became very interested in animal behaviour. And the idea of a hierarchy was first seen in chickens by um, Skeldrup Ebby back in 1921. And what seemed to be the case was a very linear kind of hierarchy from one chicken to another in a very resource limited environment, you know, where you would keep chickens. It wasn't like in nature where there are so many other resources that animals compete with, because what we do know now is that there are many resources and animals are more or less dominant for each of them. And so there is no uh, case of an animal being dominant uh, in nature for all resources that anyone has ever seen. They're more dominant for one and less for the other. And also when, they're, when, they're, when they've had enough, um, they tend to be less so. And also um, we know that in, in wolves, for example, that that kind of um, relationship was first seen on uh, Il Royale, um, the uh, the uh, work of oh gosh David Mech, and but these wolves that were introduced to this island weren't a real, really clear example of what we see in wolves normally, because normally wolves live in family groups like horses do, and in these sorts of groups we don't see dominance hierarchies. We see a lot of sharing going on. And we see that no wolf or no horse for that matter is ever dominant more than 70% of the time for any one resource. So resources are much are allocated much more um, equally in it. You could understand that in a family kind of situation, you wouldn't, if you were just boss over all the resources, nobody else would get anything. So it doesn't make any sense. But back in those early days, the idea of a hierarchy was quite a convenient idea. And in the 1960s, when, you know, the hippie movement came about, the, the, you know, there was a lot of resentment for uh, much of the establishment. And at the same time, the behaviorists, which was uh, largely Thorndike and then uh, Watson and Skinner, um, 
had very strict ideas about animals' behaviour. And um, it was very appealing scientifically, and much of it is still true. But the, the main thread of their idea, which became public, was that you could turn a peasant into a lawyer, which, of course, is wonderful and true that people can learn to, you know, to do whatever they, whatever they want to do. You're not automatically in a um, certain class situation in a society bound by your intelligence in one thing or another. You can, uh, everyone has potential. And that's the wonderful thing about education. But the social conservatives in the United States didn't like it one bit because the idea of turning a peasant into a lawyer meant that, you know, God forbid you could have um, African-Americans starting to, you know, move above their station and women and anyone who wasn't a white conservative male. And so that was very unappealing. And the ideas behind all of this had huge impetus in science. So the words operant conditioning were commonly seen in scientific papers in behaviorism. And after the social conservatives started to really attack Skinner, um, Skinner lost his job. The word operant conditioning or the term never appeared in a scientific journal again in the United States for many, many, many decades later, not until um, in the 90s. So there was this period where it wasn't um, even talked about. At the same time, well, so Skinner's gone, his students never could get jobs either. And at the same time, the uh, science of animal behavior was beginning to emerge in Europe through Conrad Lorenz and Nico Tinbergen and people like that. And even uh, von Frisch published studies about the dance of bees and it was already wonderful, but it wasn't really quite as precise as behaviorism, but that didn't matter. What actually happened was that the work of the ethologists in Europe also began to see social dominance happening. And so, you know, they were doing experiments and hiding in tents and looking at animals. And we, as I said before, we now know that there are very much more complex aspects about social dominance. And we use the term bilateral dominance, whereby one animal is only ever aware of its relationship with each of the others. It's not like any animal has a spreadsheet of all of the relationships. So what you actually see in bilateral dominance is that um, A might dominate B for food or space, uh, B might dominate C, but C might also dominate A for that same resource at any one particular time. And it will change according to Association. So it's a very much more complex thing. But nonetheless, because in ethology they seem to support the work of Schillerup Ebby back in 1921, at the same time in the 19, late 60s and early 70s, the American horse whisperers arose and there was money in it, a lot of money in it. So they, they very quickly cottoned on to the idea of dominance hierarchies and said, Actually, this is what we see in horses all the time. And people made all sorts of claims to have spent a lot of time looking at horses in the wild. And yet in the 70s and 80s and 90s, there were people who were doing PhDs in, in tents, you know, in, in hides, looking at horses. And it's been studied in um, the Assateague Island in um, the United States, in the, uh, in the 
um, in New Zealand with the Kaimanawa horses, in England with the New Forest ponies, and in Australia with the Brumbies, as well as elsewhere. And nobody's ever seen this dominance thing happen all the time. When you use it, when you do a very careful scientific approach to your observations, you know, without any kind of bias towards stallions, you know, because earlier on people were thinking, well, it's the stallions, of course, the, the dominant ones, because, you know, that's, that's the male one. Um, and then, of course, uh, people started saying, well, no, actually, no, it's the females that are always dominant. But actually, it's just so much more fluid than that. So it's really the New Age horse whisperers that grabbed this idea and took off with it. And the rest of the world believed them, or the horse world. And so they started to apply it in every different direction and say, not only does dominance theory apply between horses, it also applies from human to horse. And so all you have to do is to be the boss of the horse and all your problems are solved. And I had a very interesting experience with this many years ago. <clears throat> I was doing my PhD and I was teaching a girl on my arena with a horse that had uh, a problem. And um, her father uh, was watching me and listening to what I said through the window of his car and it was wound down and I didn't take any notice of him. And um, I'm a, you know, a newly fledged zoologist. And I, I was also thinking along these dominance lines. I had no other ideas. I thought it just made a lot of sense that you've got to be the boss of the horse. And he said to me, I'm very interested to hear what you told my daughter about her horse. What, what are you actually trying to tell her exactly? Is it that she needs to be dominant over the horse? And I said, yes, the horse is, is the boss over her. She needs to you know, she needs to get respect from the horse and then it would all be better. And he said, I'm surprised you're saying this. He said, um, haven't you just started your PhD? And I said, yes. And he said, what's it about? And I told him it was a, about uh, the cognitive abilities of horses. And he said, well, I'm surprised that you're not seeing this in terms of single learned responses. Maybe the reason the horse walks on her when she leads it, maybe it's not dominant. Maybe it just hasn't learned to lead in a straight line. And I was absolutely blown away. And I, to be honest, I really felt I couldn't take money from him for this lesson because I learned so much. And um, he said, I think you could, um, he said, who are your supervisors? And I told him my supervisors and I was very proud of them and they were wonderful. But he said, I think you need a dose of learning theory. Um, and I said, I think I might do too. And he said, look, I'll, I'll help you. Uh, and so I went to his place every week for a year and learned about learning theory from him. You know, I had a psychology course basically from this man on Friday evenings, and it was the best thing I ever did. And it really changed me from thinking about dominance to think, well, if we just broke everything down into single factors and we taught the horse that when we lead it forward, stepping sideways isn't actually leading forwards, that's stepping sideways. And all we need to do is to reinforce the horse for going in a straight line and it's a much better way of thinking about it the psychologists through the uh into the very distant shattered remains of bf skinner were still talking about this but it wasn't a common a common idea anymore uh, because many psychologists also abandoned skinner but this fellow his name is uh, professor eng he, he he was the professor of psychology at Monash University in Melbourne. And I was so glad that I'd met him. And he um, was one of the ones that 
still held on to the ideas of uh, reinforcement theory because, you know, with people, with children with learning disabilities, with children who um, have all sorts of behaviour problems, there's nothing more effective than behaviour therapy. And that is basically using operant conditioning and the theory of theories of Skinner. And so it's interesting that we tossed them out so many years ago and now we're drawing them back in. And in fact, in Australia, you can get uh, rebates on our medical system if you do uh, behaviour therapy because it's so effective. So it, it had, you know, it had a very tortured kind of uh, beginning. And I think that's the reason why so many people still hang on to it because it's a very attractive idea, the idea of dominance. But the idea of a horse seeing a human as dominant is pretty sketchy. We, we really don't know what horses think. You know, we, we try to imagine it. But in fact, we'll never know really what goes on. We just make as good a guess as we can. And um, it works much better to not blame them for the, you know, load them up with all of this nonsense and just simply look at what we've got in front of us and look at what the horse does and see how you can change the horse's behaviour through reinforcement. I also find it interesting that when you talk about dominance, it's related to resources, reproduction, food, access to resources. And I don't compete with my horse about any of his resources. I don't eat what he eats. I, I'm not, I mean... I'm a different species. So it's to me, it's also very strange to use the word dominance in that aspect. I think it is too. And um, it's, uh, you know, they talk about invading your space um, as if the horse, you know, the word invasion is even a, a word that's got a, you know, it's got a flair of aggression about it when he's not invading your space. He's just there. He stepped in a certain direction. And of course, how is he supposed to learn it uh, when sometimes, you know, you let him come into your space and you actively encourage it and then sometimes you don't. And I do think you can teach horses, you know, we teach horses to stand still and all of that sort of thing. But very often horses are within our, our space and you don't want to be afraid of that. So I think it just makes much more sense to train horses well. But part of the, the problem also was that, you know, in what also caused the demise of Skinner and behaviorism was in the 60s with the hippie movement. Um, you know, the, the children of that generation in the 60s that were now emerging as adults were pretty unimpressed with what had come before them, you know, because we'd just come out of the Second World War and there was a possibility of nuclear catastrophe with the Bay of Pigs incident in the United States. There was the thalidomide tragedy where people believe so much in medicine and now it's not so good. I know well, my mother, for example, could go to a shoe shop and have her foot x-rayed so she could get the perfect fitting shoe. You know, people just, everything was wonderful about science. And then Rachel Carson wrote her book, um, Silent Spring. And that was showing that actually, even though we go around all the suburbs in the hot, you know, the hot countries, spraying DDT everywhere, actually it's a really bad idea because it goes all the way through the food chain. And now we know it is a bad idea. And with the hippie movement, the resentment they had for the previous generation was really nourished by all of those problems that emerged then. And so that also 
meant that people very strongly believed in uh, in, in the more um, ethological approach rather than um, any behaviorism. So it you know, tended to make it even more difficult for behaviorism to make a comeback. And when I started writing about it in the 90s, I didn't realize that I would get into such big trouble. People would write to me and say, you know, you're, you're crazy. This, this, uh, these ideas, we, they died back in the 1960s. Behaviorism is, is, is not true. It doesn't, it, it's, it's not a scientifically supported um, a set of ideas when in fact it really is. And it's been now, it's re-emerged. And, um, you know, people do clicker training. It's, it's based on, on behaviorist ideas of, uh, of Watson and Skinner. And so I think, you know, with that kind of background, it's not surprising that people hang on to it. And because violence we know is reinforcing for people, um, which is a sad thing about it, but violence itself is, is, is reinforcing, um, that, you know, when people start using violence on, an, on another animal and it achieves a result, it tends to be reinforcing. So therefore, it means that, you know, we're in big trouble with ideas like that, that look like the horse is just being naughty or difficult and being dominant. And uh, as we, you and I just discussed earlier, it, it, it doesn't describe the human horse relationship well at all. So, so I'm a child of the hippie generation, um, and I met a lot of people my age who are extremely skeptical when it comes to science, big pharma, vaccines, you name it. But I suspect that the real reason of them turning their back on science in this particular matter is that if they don't, they will have to change. Claiming the right to be boss and blaming the horse for everything that goes wrong will no longer be possible. They will have to find their inner leader, the real one. I mean, we say that most horses are followers, but you can say the same about humans. Most humans are followers too. So if you are going to lead the horse from within, it is a completely different story than to use force until he becomes quote-unquote submissive. Knowing what we know today, though, I have to say, I am surprised that we're still leaning towards dominance and submission theory. Are we stupid? Are we lazy? Or is it just too hard and too painful to change our ways? Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's what it is. And I think a bit like... Um, as you implied, you know, with conspiracy theorists and people who are anti-vaxxers and all of that sort of thing. I think that is probably one of the um, leftovers of the, you know, early disenchantment with science and not believing in it, because it's, it's absolutely true in, um, in that science has done some quite a bit of damage. It's given us a lot of great things, but, you know, we're beginning to realise now that um, some of the pesticides we use, or maybe many, many of them are really bad for the environment. Uh, there, there, there's so many problems with with science. And so people then jump on that and, it, uh, and take that on. Uh, I think also, as you mentioned, it's easy to go down that path of dominance. But then again, in the long run, it's not easier because they, you know, if, you, if you're not actually training a specific behavior and discovering what actually is the behavior that is the problem. It may be, you know, for example, if the horse is instead of stepping in a forwards direction, it's stepping slightly sideways. If you think it's dominance, you'll do all sorts of things to it that won't help that problem anyway. For example, I know of methodologies in the past where people have tied horses up to a post for hours. So the horse thinks it over and thinks of a better way to do things and stops being dominant. And, um, and, and this dominance idea was also in the elephants, you know, because they believed that the god Ganesh 
gave them the elephant to serve them, and all they had to do was to make it submissive. So it's probably also nourished by what people call toxic masculinity too. The, you know, the idea of a very aggressive approach to everything is a good idea. So I think it's the, the trouble is all those sorts of ideas just create more problems. They don't they don't solve anything, and they make everything a lot worse in the end, rather than uh, fix it. And so I think I don't see any point to seeing the world like that. I think it makes much more sense to just see you have a horse who does a behavior. He doesn't have any kind of value judgment on his behavior, but people do. You know, people like to put value judgments on what horses do. And, you know, so the horse is this and the horse is that and the horse thinks this and that. So I teach my students, you know, that when they're training behavior, they, they need to be careful that they're not that they don't buy into um, character descriptors that make no sense. You know that they they basically look at what they are training, but don't say my horse is crazy or my horse is an idiot or he's nasty or whatever word they use. Just tell me exactly what what he is doing right at this moment and what are all the precursors of the behaviour. You know when people say my horse bites well, you've probably seen the, the very end of the chain, the beginning of it, when he first maybe put his ears back, then what happened and, and why did it happen? So, yeah, it's a complex complex thing, but it's much more about us, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's so much easier to smack him when he bites you rather than mm. have to think back, like you say, where did it start? What in the journey with me caused this behavior? Because it comes from you know, the relationship between me and my horse. It's my responsibility the way I see it. So I'm just surprised that people think just smack him and just move on. It's it's just, why aren't they more curious about where does it come from? I'm yeah, I'm amazed as well, but I think... Um... But it is, it is hard. I mean, I've I had some discussions with some of my friends about this and they say, well, I can kind of see that you're right, but it's such a difficult journey. It sort of works yes. this way, and it's you're you're telling me to kind of this is this is a shortcut. I like the shortcut, and you're trying to tell me no, no. It's the other mountain. You have to go down in mm. the valley and then up again. And they say it's yes. too hard. This is this is good enough for me because I'm a bit surprised that people, especially those making a lot of money from this kind of work, that they that they don't feel bad about it because they must have realized that there is something missing. We wanted to re to research that years ago, so we did a study. Um, and we uh, wanted to uh, look at the personality traits of the trainers who did various types of training. And what we assumed um, was that if you did a more had a more aggressive approach to in horse training, or you believed in dominance theory, uh, compared to um, other kinds of approaches such as an equitation science approach or whatever what we expected that we would see personality differences, but actually we didn't see them. Um, what we did see was just that the people who tended to use a more equitation science approach had a higher standard of education. That was the only significant difference. And maybe that's it, that um, it's it's difficult for people to, you know, just to retrain in some ways. They're a bit scared of the light. They, they you know, they're, they're happy in the little world that basically seems to work than uh, rather than someone coming in and basically basically exploding all their myths. Whereas I think that's unfortunately what we have to do. We should start with children so that we can 
teach children the right way. And that's uh, what we've done in Australia with the Pony Club syllabus. I just love it because it's so right. You have to start early because it's so much easier to learn than to relearn. Yeah, but it's it's very interesting too. In um, I've uh, given talks on this to the Global Dressage Forum in the in the Netherlands um, three times now, and it doesn't really make a big difference. I don't think um, it should do, but I think at, at those levels where people feel that they're successful they're not really keen to say well maybe let's look at another approach because it might mean burying some of their other ideas you know the idea that the horse is somehow culpable or that the horse you know some horses really want to show the world their dressage movements and some don't and all of those sorts of things when really the horse is a horse and we need to learn more about the horse and how he, how he and she works so that we can do a better job in our interactions. And that's, that's really the future of it all, I'm sure. So, so retraining the children of the hippies, that would be too much of a struggle for us. Yeah, well, I'm a hippie too, so I've come out of this idea. Um, and I think it's probably going to be difficult for our generation to change. Uh, many people have, by the way, people are moving in that direction because it solves problems. But the only people at the high level that I ever get to really change their mind and get them to see another way is when they've had a behaviour problem. And I've had um, a couple of people who've represented Britain in dressage and a few others who then, when they see that it can really help the behaviour for that problem, they start to really open up. And both of them, incidentally, were well-educated people and um, very good think, you know, good thinkers. So in a way, uh, intelligent people find it easier to make the change. Or people, I shouldn't say intelligent, but educated people, because there are many people that are intelligent that aren't educated. But I think somehow we've got to get people to see another possible way of doing things. And, and the welfare there's an important welfare imperative there because, you know, as um, time goes on and everything is seen in high resolution on people's televisions and um, they can give it a like or a dislike on Facebook, that's really what drives legislation in, in most countries. And so if we don't stay ahead of the game, legislation is a very, you know, tough sword to fall on. And in the end, um, you know, there are, everything changes dramatically. For example, people were doing very bad things here with greyhounds and using native animals called possums um, and tying them to these machines for the greyhounds to chase after and then they would kill it. And these poor beasts were, were tied to these things. And um, so everybody was in an uproar and they banned greyhound racing altogether. They just stopped it and said, you can't have it. But then you know, the gambling and racing lobby in Australia is very strong and they they brought it back. But it did mean they had to really make some very swift, uh, big changes to that world. So where to start with the horses? I mean, if the horse operates totally different from the way we train them, for sure it's a welfare issue. But I'm, I'm also a bit concerned about all the people that I've met that love their horses. 
and try to do the best for their horses. And they end up with methods and systems that are counterproductive and, uh, and uh, bad for the horse. And they think they're doing well. So how to, how to encourage people? I mean, what I see, because I've been to tons of clinics kind of searching for a better path with a horse, because if you really look at them, if you really spend time at horses, it's so easy to see that dominance and submission is not their thing. It's cooperation, it's, it's companionship, it's so many other things that really is the soul of the horse. And whenever I go to these clinics, there will be just women there. Only women. Yes. Women searching, trying to find that way. And I think also because being dominant, um, being in charge, being the boss and being strong and hard isn't really my way as a woman. So I think maybe, maybe women are part of the solution because they search for something else. And maybe it's also easier for them to find something else. But it's just maybe a hope more than a theory. But I'm kind of hoping that maybe women can lead the way in this matter. I think there's a very high chance that that's likely. The, um, the, there are, the hurdles to overcome are quite solid, though, in that, you know, people that are involved in a particular culture tend to um, be immersed in it to the extent where they get blinded by the culture itself. And so there's a kind of um, what we call a moral disengagement, where they disengage from the practices. So, for example, they'll say, Oh, yes, but, you know, my horse has um, a, a perfect stable. It's a beautiful stable and he gets clean bedding every night and he has, you know, meals and, uh, you know, everything that he needs. But the thing is, they don't usually have everything they need because people misunderstand what the horse needs. Um, of course, those things are really important, shelter and food. There's no doubt about that. But other things that the horse needs, for example, like socialization, because a horse is a horse and it needs other horses. And so far, the research seems to suggest that they need horses more than they need people, even their owners, because the, the limited studies in attachments suggest that horses even go for any human rather than their necessarily their own handler. And that's fine because that's who horses are. And um, you can certainly have a great relationship with your horse. But it's, it's, it's more wonderful for the human, I think. Um, it's really important for the human. So we have to be wary of, or aware of all of these things that um, play a part. One of the uh, papers that I've just been looking at was an eth ethnographical account of uh, horses in, in Britain and um, how instructors and coaches use a very military style. And it's very normal, a military sort of coaching system. And that's true for everywhere, um, pretty much in the Western world, I think it's still quite military. So the idea is, you know, oh, for heaven's sake, just do it, you know, just get on with it and make him do it. You know, so, uh, and sometimes there are some situations where maybe there's, uh, there are elements of that where you, you can't be vacillating if you're a horse trainer, you need to be consistent, but it's much better if you think things out in a, in a logical kind of way about what you're going to do. So getting back to you, what you were saying, I think uh, it's more than likely women would lead the way there because um, it's certainly more inherent in our cultures at the moment that um, men tend to be more, um, have a, 
they find the dominance approach more attractive than women do. And probably because the, what women often report is that they're not quite strong enough anyway, whereas the men like to, you know, we like to think we are pretty strong and can do those things. And strength is really not the way around it because if you really had a test of strength, horses would win every single time. So I think a better way is on the horizon. What I find fascinating is that with my work with elephants, it's very opposite to my work with horses because with horses, I'm working with the wealthier pe wealthiest people in the Western world. And with, horses, with elephants, I'm working with the poorest people in Southeast Asia. You know, that's, they're the ones who are with the elephants all the time who train them, particularly in places like uh, Northeast India and Nepal, where, you know, it's a very low caste in Nepal, who the lowest caste of all, called the Taru tribe, who are the great elephant trainers. And they're not considered much better than untouchables. And yet, these people are the quickest to take up new information compared to the wealthy ones in the West with horses. So with all of our education uh, and everything that we have in the West, we're really slow to make any kind of change um, in our mindset. And yet in uh, Southeast Asia, that's one of the things I really love about working with the elephants is that people come on board so quickly to look for a better way. Partly it's because elephants are quite dangerous if you do, you know, in, in traditional systems, there's a lot of danger when elephants they're less tolerant than horses if you make mistakes and you're confusing. But also there's a lot of um, sort of PTSD type of behaviours that appear later in an elephant's life if it's been abused. So um, often they will, or not often, but frequently elephants are known to kill their, their own mahouts. Um, it's, it's not uncommon in southern India because the elephants have a really tough life there because they're often used in ceremonial uh, situations, you know, and there are not only, you know, all day in the heat with people standing on, on them and mu loud music you know, with drums, but then firecrackers in the, at the end of the day. And that's when the elephants suddenly can go crazy. But nonetheless, um, the mahouts are the uh, easier to teach. So it's, it's pretty, it's complex. And that's why I still think that our best hope is with children. I, I totally agree. Our best hope is with children, but I, I just have this this uh, urge, this need to also try to help the horses now. You are. You are doing it. That's what this your program's about. And I think probably what, you will find um, that people will start to consider and reflect because, you know, this is the conversation and the trouble with the conversations that often happen like this is they're in a kind of echo chamber where nobody is listening except for the people who are already convinced so you know when you've got a more open forum um, like this where you've got people who maybe who, who just want to listen to various people and uh, in, in all aspects of horsemanship and horse husbandry I think um, you've got a really good chance of you know making change and it's a it may be slow but i think it's when you think we've been doing this other way these other ways for thousands of years i think i'm always in a hurry to make change but then i keep thinking it is happening it's just very it's very slow and one day a more 
um, what I call equitation science approach will be mainstream because it's not it's not a it's not a method it's just a lens through which you can view methods you know you can still do um, Pirelli or you can do British horsemanship or whatever you like but the lens of, of equitation science basically dictates a, because it's about animal learning and ethology it dictates whether it's likely to work or not and it explains why it doesn't work when it doesn't work and why it does work when it does so it's it's an educational thing that you know it's going to take time but it is happening i think and you know programs like this will make a big difference and for sure also the work that you're doing i i just can't tell you how happy i am that it was possible to convince you to take another chat about this very important issue andrew because i can i can sit there alone in my studio in norway and, and talk about what i think but you know some things and you have a history of science to look at and i think it's really relevant because it it comes from something that is a bit more solid than just me you know sitting in my chamber or uh, some horsemanship trainer sitting in this chamber and thinking oh this is a bright idea or this sounds clever but it's the mythology and and looking at the bigger picture that that you really add to the flavor i'm i'm so grateful for for your perspective on this particular issue it's really enjoyable for me and it was it for me it's just about being curious you know because i always did wonder why do we do this like this why what is this dominance idea about where did it all come from and so it's only, you know it's when you look at the history of psychology and then you start to look at the history of horsemanship you can see how you know one thing has led to another and um how you know the ideas of dominance were unfortunately fertilized by the ethologists you know uh, when behaviorism uh, was assaulted in in America and nobody talked about it anymore all we had left was ethology and it you know it really it gave us some great great information but it also um, unfortunately helped kill it helped kill Skinner you know uh, that was that was the big problem I think so now we're doing you know now we're doing both where we've got all we've got so much of that information and history and um Science, I think, is going in a better direction now in terms of animal uh, awareness. And animal welfare also is a new science that's, you know, wasn't on the horizon years ago. But, um, well, it was in certain respects in that people wanted to make an animal's life good so that you could use it, use that animal. You know, you wanted a good draft horse to be healthy so that he would pull the plough for more hours in a day. And then, and then along came um, the five freedoms where people talked about, you know, an animal should be free of pain and free of um, hunger and those kinds of things. And that seemed to be a wonderful thing and it certainly was. But then David Mellor came along and started to look at other aspects of what makes an animal's life worthwhile, you know, just beyond uh, the horse being or the animal being free of pain and free of a discomfort and hunger what about what makes what about investigating what makes an animal's life worth living and that's really where we are now and that's why I've been starting to push people with stables to say just test it out take the bars down and let because 
when people say my horse shies and is really spooky, that tells me he's insecure. And so why is he insecure? If he's got really good training and he's well-trained, that box is ticked. So you need to look at all the other needs of the horse and not imagine he's a human, but imagine his life as a horse and he needs um, a certain amount of exercise. He needs foraging. Uh, you know, he, he, it's not that he wants to eat hay so much as that he needs to chew for 13 hours a day and he needs social companions. And once you allow him access to that, and the, his life is so much better, he's more confident. And so to me, that's where the science is going. And it's, a, it's, a, it's wonderful to be on that journey um, and to be alive at the moment to see these, these big changes. They're not happening fast, I agree, in the horse world, but they, they're slowly moving. Thank you ever so much, uh, Andrew. I, I just feel I could talk to you about this, uh, these uh, topics and other topics for hours. I'm, I'm so grateful for, um, for your contribution to the horse world. And I'm really going to encourage my listeners to, to take a further look at what you guys have to offer. And also, you know, other people elsewhere who offer something different. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm much I really appreciate the opportunity. It's been wonderful. You have just heard episode 9 from Clan of the Horses, a podcast about horses and horse people. And this was the second part of the interview with Dr. Andrew McLean. In the first part, we talked about equine cognition and learning. So if you haven't heard that interview already, I really recommend it. I want to thank my composer, Fredrik Blom, my guest, Dr. Andrew McLean, and last but not least, I want to thank you, dear listener, for your patience. May the horse be forever with you.